starting a new series today, um, one that's likely going to get me in trouble called God Never Said That. And so we're going to play a little game this morning to see how prevalent some of these things are. So here's the rules. I'm going to give you eight sayings. This is not a competition, right? It's just fun. It's okay. You don't have to win, right? So it'll be all right. We're just going to do eight sayings. We're going to go through them one by one. Personal quiz. You know, you don't have to keep track. You just keep score yourself and go, oh, that's interesting. All right. So here we go. Um, I'm going to go one at a time. The question is, are these sayings in the Bible or not in the Bible? Here we go. Saying number one, God helps those who help themselves. Did you miss the part on keep this to yourself and we're not just a guy that... <laughs> Because the first service did the exact same thing, too. In fact, they just played the whole way through, so why don't you just have at it and uh, lost control of the place. Number two, cleanliness is next to godliness. Number three, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Number four, spare the rod, spoil the child. Number five, this too shall pass. Oh, get a little harder, you cocky little. <laughs> Number seven, God works in mysterious ways. Uh, number eight, oh, I, I missed one, didn't I, Maggie? I missed um, when God closes one door, it depends on the version you have. When God closes one door, he either opens another or he opens a window. Last but not least, God will never give you more than you can handle. All right. How many of them are in the Bible? The answer is one. Only one of them. What you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. That came from an, an Old Testament story of Joseph, whose brothers had done some terrible stuff to him, and that's what Joseph pronounced over them. None of the rest of them are in the Bible. Um, spare the rod, spoil the child is close. We could argue about it, but here's what it, it comes from Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, which is an ancient book of wisdom in the Old Testament. And in Proverbs 13, it says, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. So it's a takeoff on that, but it's not written like that in the scriptures. But as you can see, and you're church-going folks, lots and lots and lots of sayings and common wisdom get attributed to the Bible. More importantly, they get, they get attributed to God. And he never said them. He never said them. Which I, I guess at one level, it's not a bad thing because at least these things are half true in many ways, right? And, and all truth by its very definition, all truth is God's truth. The deal though is if you get only half of the directions right, you can wind up pretty lost. Think about it, right? Oftentimes, it's, it's our wrong ideas about God and His will and His character and the way He works, which become stumbling blocks to faith, to our faith, to our trust, and to our love of Him. In the first service, when I, when I said, God will never give you more than you can handle, one woman yelled out, that is not in the Bible. And I said, you have been given more than you can handle. But if people keep telling you that that's in the Bible... And, and you're given more than you can handle, what do I do with that? And so over the coming couple of weeks, what I want to do is go over, this could be fun, or it could get me fired, we'll see how it plays itself out. 
In the coming couple of weeks, we're going to go over some of the most prevalent sayings and common wisdom that, that a lot of us think that God said, and he did. And so the goal is that as we discover the real truth about him, that our faith would grow deeper roots and our, and our understanding and love for God might increase. So this morning, I'm going to dive right in with what I think might be the most commonly held communal wisdom that gets attributed to God. Love the sinner, hate the sin. If you've heard love the sinner, hate the sin, raise your hand for me so I can see how prevalent it is. See, it's pretty prevalent. Do you know how you know that something in the culture has taken root, that an adage, right, has taken hold? People tattoo it on themselves. And it's true. And love the sinner, uh, hate the sin has taken hold. Here's, uh, here's tattoo number one. Uh, this woman is serious enough about hating sin and loving sinners that she tattooed it on herself. But let's not get crazy. Keep it up high on the shoulder. This way I can put a shirt sleeve on and no one will ever know it's there. Now, others are a bit more secure in their sentiment, right? And so I love this guy. He uses giant body parts, but he uses them kind of like pages of a book. So when they're placed together, you can see the whole thing spell itself out. Now, I'm not sure if you're out with him at a bar that evening and he's holding up one arm with a drink and it just says, you know, hate the sin. You're like, what is, what is going on with this guy, right? Now, this is what I call being totally committed to the cause. Check this one out. I'm not sure what the owl has to do with this sentiment, but I mean, this person is really, they really hate sin and love sinners. They're serious about it, and there is a lot of turtlenecks in that guy's future. <laughs> hate the sin and love the sinner is not a bad saying. I'm not here to tell you it's a bad saying, right? Sin is a bad thing. We're supposed to love everyone. But the problem with the saying is oftentimes Christians quote that saying in a way that is perceived by people as less than loving. And I think I'm going to be able to show you why it's not in the Bible and why Jesus specifically never said this. And it's important, so let's jump in. Now, in order to do that, we're going to back up a little bit and define a little bit of terminology, uh, the, what that guy had tattooed on his chest, right? What is sin? Other than kind of, kind of a spooky-sounding old religious word, what, what is sin? Well, uh, prominent theologian Wayne Grudem, who pretty much wrote the book, he literally wrote the book on systematic the theology. This is how he defines sin. It's any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Act, attitude, or nature. Most of us get the act part, right? Sin is something we do. That's what our mom and dad told us. It, it, it's when we stole the pen. It's when we said the bad word, right? But sin is not just what we do. Sin can also be an attitude. It can be the way we think. You see that in the Ten Commandments, right? We're not to covet our neighbor's stuff. And then, of course, sin is not just the things we do or the way we think. Sin, the Scriptures teach, is actually part of our fallen, broken human nature. We are, since the fall of man, born sinners. We are sinners because we sin, but just as importantly, and maybe even more foundationally, we sin because even when we are at rest or asleep, because we are sinners. It's in our, it's in our DNA. It's in our nature. 
Now, as you can imagine, the writers of the Bible have lots and lots of ways to talk about sin. According to the Scriptures, what's actually in there, how widespread is sin? How big of a problem is it, right? The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament after the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, those are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Apostle Paul then, he goes on to write a lot of letters to a lot of churches. And he writes this letter to the church in Rome that's become maybe, maybe his great treatise on this subject. Here's what Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, all of us, all of us act, all of us think, all of us even rest in sin. According to the Bible, actually from Paul again to that letter to the church in Rome, how big of a deal is sin? I mean, it's prevalent. How big of a deal is it? What, what's, in a sense, the, what's the cost? Well, Paul would say the wages of sin is death. Ultimately, sin is the reason that I have a sand trap looking thing on the back of my head here. It's the reason I am getting older. It is the reason why I will physically one day die. But live long enough in this world and you will see that long before you die, sin kills lots of other things. Hopes, dreams, plans, relationships. Okay? According to the Bible, and not a tattoo, how serious should we take the issue of sin? Because I think what happens is when you grow up knowing that, well, everybody has sinned and Jesus pays the price for our sins, I think because we see sin as being so common and not rare, we start to think it's not a big deal. How concerned, in a sense, should we be about sin? Well, according to Jesus' brother James in his New Testament book, we should be pretty concerned, more concerned than I think we are. Here's what James said. Wash your hands, you sinners, which, by the way, is good for the corona thing going around now, too, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. How serious is it? Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. See, sin is not like a, a little thing. It's not to be poo-pooed. And I think sometimes when we, we come up with trite sayings, sometimes it can equate to that. It's interesting. David Platt, he, he, he's an author who wrote a book called Radical. Many of us have read it over the years. He caused a bit of controversy a while ago during an interview um, when he said, you know, the saying, love the sinners, uh, is not biblical. In fact, he went on. He said, God doesn't just love sinners. Jesus loves sinners, but, but let me get what he said right. He said that God does love sinners, but we need to understand and wrestle with this. He also hates them. According to the Psalms, the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The blood for thirsty and the deceitful, Lord, you detest. Now, I didn't write that. Those are strong words. Don't shoot the messenger. But I share them with you because I think it gives us a an understanding of the seriousness of the issue. We have an issue. Now, you might be going, well, that's Old Testament, John. I don't like Old Testament God. I like New Testament God. I don't see any of that in New Testament God. Okay? First of all, there is only one God. He is both Old Testament God and he is New Testament God. And in the New Testament, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh, we love it. 
John chapter 3, 2, from the lips of Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath, hatred, anger, remains on him. How do we reconcile a God who hates sinners, which is the whole world, and a God who so loves the whole world? Where do you mesh those ideas together? At what point could they converge? Where do mercy and justice and grace and truth meet? The answer is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Isaiah, one of Israel's great prophets, foresaw what Jesus was going to accomplish on our behalf this way. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. Sin is a big, big issue. When measured against the holiness and goodness and righteousness of God, it is the issue. It is our issue. The sin discussion in the scriptures is so prevalent, the writers describe it in all kinds of ways. Some of them describe sin as a wandering from the way. Often it's described as missing the mark. The writers use a word that is used to describe an archer with bad aim. You don't want to stand in the way of an archer with bad aim. Why? Because missed shot arrows do damage. Sin does that. I say and I do and I become and I go in ways I didn't set out. The descriptives continue. Sin is described as brokenness and blemish and crookedness and distortion and rebellion. Sin's described as the owing of a debt because sin always has a price attached to it. I think you get the picture. So it's easy to understand in one way why we should hate sin. Makes sense. But what sin should I hate? I spent some time this week trying to figure out where this saying came from because Jesus never said it. And so some folks have attributed the saying to St. Augustine. He was a bishop from North Africa who lived in the late 4th, early 5th centuries. And in his capacity as a church leader, Augustine was writing a letter to nuns and he was asking them to remain chaste. In that letter, he called them to, quote, with love for humankind and hatred of sins. However, my guess is Augustine meant, did not mean to coin a phrase that Christians were going to use to describe their dislike of someone else's sin. Others, this is fun. I, 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 it's fun when you see people that are, are, are taking quotes and they're totally using them out of context. Others have pointed to Gandhi. You can find this saying attributed to Gandhi all over the place. Jesus never said this. Gandhi actually did. But what you find is nobody actually tattoos everything that Gandhi said about this on themselves because here's what he actually said. Hate the sin and not the sinner. That's usually where we leave it off. Gandhi continued, is a precept which, though easy to understand, is rarely practiced, and that is why the poison of hatred spreads in this world. See, if all truth is God's truth, I think he might have been on to something. 
Biblically, the closest that you can get to this concept of love the sin or hate the sin is what Paul wrote to that church in Rome in chapter 12 of his letter. He said, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Well, there it is, John. There it is right there. It says, hate what is evil. But here's the deal. What Paul is writing here, this passage, is, doesn't give us permission to hate other people's sins. What Paul is speaking about is my own sin. Can you make somebody else's love genuine? No. I can only make my love genuine. Can you make another person hold fast to what's good? No, I can only do that. And you can only hate the sin that's inside you because you're the only human being who knows what's going on inside of you. You cannot see inside of other people. You can't correctly identify what's inside of them. And that means that you and I are not commanded, and I would argue not even permitted or qualified, to hate someone else's sin. The sin I'm called to hate is not theirs. It's mine. See, instead of worrying about your sin, I'm actually called to be worrying about my own, hating it for what it's doing to me and to others. My jealousness, my, my insecurities, my, my selfishness, my lust and my greed and my constant need to, you know, I could go on and on. All the pain and the loss and the mess that all of those things, those sin inside of me is, is causing to my wife, the damage it's done to her for 25, 30 years. The damage it's done to my children. The way I've allowed it to, to, to fester in, in, my, in my workspace. The truth is, I have plenty enough sin of my own to worry about. I, I don't have enough time to be too worried about yours, or at least judging yours. It, it was to a mindset of love the sinner and hate the sin that Jesus told this really interesting story. Listen to his audience. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, love the sinner, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is actually the origin of what has been referred to in the church over the centuries as the Jesus prayer. This is literally what I whisper to God almost every night when I get into bed. And it literally, it is what I whisper to God every time I'm sitting a on a plane and it's getting ready to take off. I pray the Jesus prayer. This is it. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can I get you to say that with me? Let's do it together. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus concludes, I'm telling you that this man, the sinner, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It is not our business to hate other people's sins. I don't know your story, you don't know mine, and therefore we should not be pronouncing judgment upon one another. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity states this 
both brilliantly and I would say almost controversially. I'm going to read just this little portion. Stick with me. It's so fascinating. Here's what he said. Human beings judge one another by external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats, I don't know why you'd be neurotic to have a horror about cats. Everybody does. But when a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it is quite possible that in God's eyes he's shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the Purple Heart. When a man who's been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does the tiniest little act of kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you and I would do if we gave up life itself for a friend. It is also well to put it the other way around. Some of us who seem quite nice people may, in fact, have made so little use of a good heredity and good upbringing that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. That is why Christians are told not to judge. We see only the result, which is man's choices, what, make, what comes out of that raw material. God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but what, on what he has done with it. In the kingdom to come, Lewis concludes, listen to this, we shall then, for the first time, see everyone as he really was. There will be surprises. Paul summed it up quicker. He wrote it like this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Feel that? I haven't been called to hate anybody's sin other than my own. Now, there's another part. Love the sinner. Jesus loved sinners. As you know, and, and much of the religious people's dislike, he hung out with them all the time. He went to their homes. He, he celebrated at their parties. And sinners liked him. Let me repeat that. They liked him. He was a self-professed friend of sinners, yet Jesus never once asked you or I to love sinners. Now, he commanded us to love, make no mistake about it. When asked what the greatest commandment in the law was, Jesus said it was to love God, but then he said the second was equal to it, which was to love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm to love my neighbor. Well, Jesus would define that. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I'm telling you to love your enemies. All right, so so far Jesus has told me to love my neighbor. He's told me to love my enemies. And just in case I was trying to find a loophole, right, he goes on. You've heard it. Or, excuse me. He goes on and goes, a new command I give you. New command, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. I'm to love my neighbor. I'm to love my enemy. We're to love one another. Jesus never once said, love the sinner. Why? Adam Hamilton puts it this way. He said, I think Jesus knew that if he commanded the disciples to love the sinner, I, this is so true. I think Jesus knew that if he commanded his disciples to love the sinner, they'd begin to look at other people more as sinners than as neighbors. And that inevitably would lead to judgment. 
If I love you more as a sinner than as my neighbor, then I'm bound to focus more on your sin, and I'm going to start looking for all the things that are wrong with you. And perhaps, without intending it, I'll begin thinking of our relationship like this. You are a sinner, but I am graciously, uh, gracious enough to choose to love you anyway. See, when love the sinner is our mantra, we put ourselves in a position of seeing others as sinners rather than neighbors. And though we might emphasize that, well, we're sinners too, but the reality is we focus on the other as the sinner rather than our neighbor, and it begins to define the relationship. This is why so many people outside of the church don't find this saying all that loving. I'll love you despite the fact you're a sinner. See, Jesus never tells us to love the sinner because he understands there's something about us and our broken human nature which loves to elevate ourselves to judge. It was to the great crowd assembled on the mount that Jesus said, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with that measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Paul wrote a letter to the city of Corinth. If you know anything about the city of Corinth in biblical history, Corinth was a moral mess. Corinth makes Las Vegas look like Disneyland. Corinth, what was happening in Corinth was such a disaster, I literally can't tell you what was happening in Corinth in church because you can't talk that way in church. Yet Paul, to the believers in Corinth, said this, what business is it of mine to judge those outside this church? What business is it of yours? Jesus goes on. Why? It's interesting because he poses it a question. Why? Ask yourself this. Why? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? Again, whose sin should I be, should I be hating? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the plank out of your own eye. Hate your own sin. Work on your own sin. Now, Please, hear me on this. I, I, you need to hear this part. Should we hate sin? Of course we should hate sin. Are there sins we should stand against? Absolutely. Are we called to take moral stances in a world that has a tendency to slide towards hedonism? Yes. That's why Jesus does not leave it here. He says, first take the, first take the plank out of your own eye. First take the plank out of your own eye. And then, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. We are called to tell and speak the truth, but not to do it until first we have examined ourselves and then to do it in love. I'm going to give you one last thing to reflect on. When we tattoo love the sinner and hate the sin on each forearm, when we crochet it on pillows, it tends to equate those as equals. I think what we're seeing is that neither of them is actually what we're called to do, and that the eyes of Jesus, those two sentiments are not equal. Jesus speaks into this debate often. The religious leaders of his day and Jesus are in this constant argument over the priority of loving the sinner and hating the sin. It underpins most of their discrepancies. The debate was often over prioritizing the people or the law. You see it over and over. Some of you know the story of a religious leaders who, who were waiting to trap Jesus in this debate. And so they waited and found a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they dragged her before Jesus because they wanted to see where he would come out on this topic. Jesus, here's the woman, here's the law. 
You're hanging around these sinners all the time. Here's a serious one. What are you going to do now, Jesus? You know the law. Jesus, the law says she's got to die. She needs to be stoned. Now, now I need you to hear this. This is very important. Jesus is very serious about the law of God. He wrote it. It's his law. And the religious leaders knew Jesus was serious about the law because it was Jesus who had said, quote, do not think I have come to abolish the law. I have, come, um, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill them. And he goes on, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is serious about the law. And so the, the Pharisees are going, well, here it is, Jesus, have at her. What do you do when these things collide? Many of you know the story. Jesus stoops down and he starts just kind of scribbling in the sand with his finger. And after a little time goes by, he looks up and he says, well, I'll let any of you who is without sin, then you can be the first one to throw a stone at her. Whose sin am I called to hate? At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. I like that because the longer you live, the more you realize you got some issues. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. These arguments happen with Jesus all the time. He would heal on the Sabbath. In the first century Israel, healing on the Sabbath was considered to be work, and work was not permitted on the Sabbath. It's one of the top ten commandments, right? Honor the Sabbath. And yet when faced with the conflict of the law and the needs of the people, Jesus would choose people. He'd heal. It drove the religious leaders nuts. It's another time. Jesus and his disciples are walking along. Check this out. One Sabbath... Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees, the religious elite, said to them, look what they're doing, what they're doing. You can't pick wheat today, it's the Sabbath. What they're doing is unlawful on it. Jesus, is the same issue. You walk around here, you tell us you're serious about the law of God, you're healing on the Sabbath, your disciples are harvesting grain on the Sabbath. If you were serious about the law of Jesus, you would have had them harvest it yesterday and keep it for today. What are you doing? Jesus, who's a lot smarter than, than me, he answered them. He goes, because he understood that their love of the, of the Old Testament law and their love of Moses and of David, the patriarch of their, their faith, one of their fathers. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. And then he looked at them and said this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God made and gave the law for man, for man's benefit, for man's keeping. The law is super important. 
Breaking of its moral code is sin. And sin is so serious that Christ would die a brutal death for it. But God did not have the law first. God did not create lots of laws and go, now I need to find somebody to keep them. I think I'll make people. Right? God created man, and then he created the laws. God created laws, why? To keep his people. Friends, in your relationship with your kids that disappoint you, or your neighbors who don't live like you want them to, or those folks at work who don't vote like you think you, they should, I just want you to let that truth roll around in your head for a little bit. What do you do with that? Jesus' brother James said this, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Love the sinner, hate the sin is not an equal command. In fact, it's no command at all. Billy Graham's eldest daughter, Gigi, was her father's date one time to Time Magazine's 75th anniversary party. A banquet was held in Washington, D.C., and, and President Clinton was speaking at the event. He had just been impeached by the House of Representatives for perjury and obstruction of justice. If you were old enough uh, to remember those days, there was a lot of charges flying around. He had been impeached over perjury involving lying under oath about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. Everybody was all fired up at the, the banquet. Billy Graham sat with the president and Mrs. Clinton, and, and he was warm and gracious to them. After the dinner ended and, and Billy Graham and Gigi were riding back to their hotel, the two of them began to discuss the difficulties the president and the first lady were going through with so many people gossiping and judging and hating. And Gigi said her father's simple comment was this, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's God's job to judge. It's our job to love. May I propose to you this morning a new tattoo. Some of us, maybe most of us, need a laser-like tattoo removal of judgment from our own lives and hearts. Maybe, just maybe, we could replace it with this. Would you stand and close with me?